from the sovereignty of God and salvation to the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus Christ. The indispensability of unity and generosity in the Christian life. The blueprint for how to suffer well. The imputed righteousness of Christ that's ours by faith. The triathlon that is the Christian life. The idea of this otherworldly citizenship in heaven. The doctrine of the resurrection of our physical bodies. The significance of right thinking in the battle for our souls. The secret of contentment in all circumstances. I mean, these are just a few of the glorious things that we're going to talk about for the next two and a half months as a church. But the overarching theme, the thread that holds this entire letter together is that of gospel-centered joy. This idea of gospel-centered joy. The words joy and gospel are more prevalent in this book of the Bible than any other book of the Bible. In fact, the, the book of Philippians has come to be known in many Christian circles as the joy book. Paul throws around this lingo of rejoicing over and over and over again. But, but he's not talking about joy in and of itself. Again, he's talking about gospel-fueled joy. Joy that is fueled and fanned into flame by the power of the gospel. What a great book to dive into as we come out of the series on the everyday gospel, right? We talked about... The Apostle Paul's belief that the gospel is meant to have this strengthening effect in the life of the Christian. That the gospel is meant to have an impact on us in the midst of the everyday rhythms of life. Now we get to see that theology on display with the church in Philippi as our case study. We get to see the gospel at work in a particular body of believers. Here's my hope. As a result of this series, I wrote down a few things this week. My hope as a result of this series is that the gospel becomes both more beautiful and indispensable to you. My hope is that you experience the joy that can only be found in seeing and savoring Jesus. My hope is that you get a glimpse of what a shared passion for the gospel looks like and that it compels you to intertwine your life with others in this church for the sake of the gospel. And finally, among other things, my hope is that you all shine like stars, even in your suffering, knowing that God uses it all for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to guess where? Philippians chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. The first 11 verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's hard to understand, take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get going. God, I ask you by your spirit, even now, to begin to do all of those things that I just lifted up as the hope of this series, ultimately. I pray that the gospel would, in these moments that we have together, become more beautiful and indispensable to everyone in this room. I pray that everyone in this room, throughout the course of this series and moving on from it, would experience the joy that can only be found in seeing and savoring you, Jesus. I pray that we would all get a, get a true glimpse of what a shared passion for the gospel can really look like, and that it would compel us to to either for the first time intertwine our lives with others in this church for the sake of the gospel or, or to, to knit our hearts even more deeply to others in this church for that cause. 
And lastly, for those who will suffer even in the months to come as we work our way through this book of the Bible, who may be coming even this morning suffering now, going through really difficult things, I pray that as a result of our time this morning, that we, we all who find ourselves struggling in life would walk away shining like stars, knowing that you use all of it for the advancement of your gospel, Jesus. Would you do all of this in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Got a little bit of ground to cover this morning. Don't want the pizza to get cold, so let's jump in and get to work. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Okay, first word in this letter, Paul. It's fascinating when you think about the Apostle Paul, the fact that he was not one of the original 12 disciples. In fact, as the original 12 were seeking to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ and build the New Testament church, Paul was on a mission to destroy that very church. Many of you know the story. In those days, he was known as Saul, a devout Pharisee, a moralistic Bible belt box checker, you might say. And like many of the devout Pharisees of Paul's time, he didn't much care for people who loved and followed Jesus. And so he made it his mission to persecute the church even unto death. If you read the account of Stephen, the first New Testament Christian martyr, which you find in Acts chapters 6 through 8, you find Saul in the thick of it all. He's not only witnessing this martyrdom, but rather approving of it. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. It says this, And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Saul was a violent hater of all things Christianity. Make no mistake about it. He was committed to the mission of spitting on the bride that Jesus died and bled for. And God reached down by his grace and said, no more, brother, you're mine. It's what God loves to do. His conversion took place on the road to Damascus. Many of you are familiar with the story. He had a direct encounter with the risen Jesus. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9. He was given the name Paul and went on to become one of the early church's first missionaries, the same man who had once made it his ambition to destroy the New Testament church, became a pioneersman for church planting. Don't you love the irony of God in that? So awesome. Planted churches all over the Mediterranean landscape, went on to author more New Testament books of the Bible than any other writer. That's the Apostle Paul. If you come into this place this morning believing that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, you're wrong. You're not. Just look at Paul's story. It's a booming declaration that God's grace is bigger than your sin. Timothy's story, a little different. Mother was Jewish. Dad was a Greek. His mother had become a Christian somewhere along the way. He was exposed to the gospel, and he became a Christian by grace alone, just like the Apostle Paul. On Paul's second missionary journey, he and Timothy crossed paths. Paul decided he wanted Timothy to accompany him, and the rest is history. Timothy became... Paul's young protege on the road, you might say, definitely had a close relationship. One of the weirdest passages of Scripture is that where Paul actually circumcises Timothy. You don't get any closer to a man than that. For the sake of the gospel, of course. 
Paul actually writes this letter around the 10-year anniversary of this church plant, a little more than twice the age of Cross Point Peachtree City, from a Roman penitentiary, the big house. No clue as to whether this man's going to breathe the breath of freedom with his next or the breath of certain death. Now, in light of that backdrop, notice that Paul doesn't go with his usual phrase, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Rather, he refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Really interesting. When you read your Bible, always critical to note the differences when you have uh, an author who's written more than one book of the Bible to see how he speaks in this letter versus that letter and, and what are the differences, what are the similarities. Here, there is no Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, just Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servant, from the Greek word doulos, meaning slave. Paul, a man currently in Roman shackles, declares, I'm a slave, all right, but not of Rome. He declares he and Timothy to be two men humbly in the service of Jesus, their master. That'll make a little bit more sense as we dive into this letter further over the next couple of months. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So Paul's writing to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. Just Just to give some context, if you remember from your time with Shakespeare in grade school, Julius Caesar was murdered by a couple dudes by the name of Brutus and Cassius. A tu Brute, remember that phrase? Well, Brutus and Cassius are eventually overthrown by a couple of guys by the names of Mark Antony and Octavian. And that takedown took place in the city of Philippi. Philippi was deeply rooted in Roman history and culture. It's kind of an abnormality. It was as Roman as you could get without being Rome, you might say. In other words, a very privileged city. If you lived there, you had the full rights of a Roman citizen. Um, the, the people who lived there actually declared themselves to be Romans. Many retired Roman soldiers lived there, various wealthy families. It was an affluent culture, a coastal city. Um, the city was modeled in many ways after the city of Rome itself, from the, the roads, the infrastructure, the architecture, even the coinage. It was a mini-Rome, you might say. Official language was Latin, the the language of Rome, though that was not a prevalent language uh, in the known world at that time. The religious landscape was very syncretistic, meaning that there were a plethora of gods to be worshipped. The one thing that was not up for debate is that you were expected to declare Caesar is Lord, no matter who else you worshipped, which might explain Paul's defiant declaration in chapter 2 that Jesus Christ is Lord. you got to love this guy. So, Question begs to be answered, how did a Christian church come on the scene in this particular city, in this miniature version of the city of Rome? Well, you can actually read about that story in Acts chapter 16, and I would encourage you to do that this week. If you find the Bible to be boring, if that's your perception of the Bible, go read Acts chapter 16. It's a crazy story of a core group gathering. On his second missionary journey, the the one where Paul picked up Timothy as his roadie, the Apostle Paul just starts telling people about Jesus. That's how churches are planted. It's not rocket science. You share the gospel and a church is, is birthed, and that's what you see here. What I love about this story is that we actually get three evangelistic encounters in Acts chapter 16 that show us what the core group gathering phase of this church plant actually looks like. First, there was the women's prayer meeting down by the riverside that Paul and his, uh, his posse decided to break up on the spot. Didn't even wait for him to close in prayer. Um, they, they just step in and begin to share the gospel. Uh, you, you find the story of Lydia, the, the 
biblically famous seller of purple goods. For those who may not be aware, we talked about this in the seven church, churches series, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Purple dye, which was obtained from a, a certain type of shellfish, was the only color fast dye in the known world at that time. That's why purple is now known as the symbol of royalty and wealth. When you watch movies that have kings, they're usually robed in purple. If that particular shellfish had produced a pink dye, then pink would be the color of royalty to this day. Though if you hung around my house long enough, you might think that was the case anyway. Lydia, she was in the purple business. Sounds really strange to say, which meant that she did really well for herself. Uh, she was very uh, affluent. She was a God-fearer, but not a Christian. That is, until Paul and his team of missionaries met her and her friends down by the riverside and shared the gospel with her. Acts chapter 16 tells us that upon hearing the gospel, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. Soon after, she and her household were baptized, and there you have it, the first core group members of the church in Philippi. The next addition, as you probably would guess to this core group, was a demon-possessed slave girl in the fortune-telling business. She was making a lot of money for a couple of guys, uh, telling fortunes, uh, increasing their profit margins. Paul, without so much as a blink, cast the demon out of this girl, and she became a member of this church-planting initiative along with Lydia and her family. The owners were not very happy about it, their profit margins were diminished by her conversion, which is why Paul and Silas actually ended up in prison in the first place, which brings me to the third edition of the core group, the jailer who was responsible for keeping watch over Paul and Silas while they were in the slammer. As the story goes, around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to the Lord. You may know this story, and right in the middle of their praise and worship session, God sent an earthquake that shook the very foundations of the prison, shook the very shackles right off of Paul and Silas. The jailer is so devastated about his failure to do his job well that he was getting ready to commit suicide. And in that moment, rather than running away, Paul and his friends stuck around to share the gospel with this guy. And that very night... Upon hearing the gospel, along with his household, there were a number of baptisms that took place. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be a part of that baptism party? By the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 16, you have this small group of people gathering together in Lydia's home as the establishings of a core group in the city of Philippi. The beginnings of a church planting initiative. The very first Christian church plant on European soil. Think about what God has done in 2,000 years since then. A rich lady and her friends, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer. Nothing in common other than Jesus Christ himself. Man, I love the church. Let me ask you this. Who has God brought into your life that he might be preparing for a gospel awakening? Do you know a few Lydia's, quote-unquote? People who moved to the area for a job, Maybe people who are very religious but have yet to have a gospel awakening in their lives. Do you know anyone who's tormented like that slave girl? Experiencing great hurt, pain, brokenness, abuse maybe. Do you have any religiously indifferent blue collar friends that, that might could stand to meet Jesus? We all have a mission field and as drastically as all of our mission fields are, it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ that saves Again, Paul writes his letter to the church 
in Philippi around the 10-year anniversary of this, this church plant. It's about a decade old. old. And, and we see, even in the language of verse 2, that the church is doing pretty well. It's thriving. The church is blessed with both elders and deacons, the two offices of the church. It says overseers in most of your Bibles. That's synonymous with elder or pastor. Elders serve the church by leading, while deacons, on the other hand, lead the church by serving. That's the best way I know how to explain the difference between the two. Um, the church in Philippi, we're told, has both. While there are some unity issues, some challenges with antagonistic outsiders, most, most is going well in this particular church. Things are thriving. This is a church that's come alongside Paul to support his ministry financially. They've, they've recently sent Epaphroditus, one of their own members, to visit Paul to bring him a gift. As we'll see as we dive into this letter, Epaphroditus gets sick along the way, but he does make it to Paul. And so Paul writes this letter and sends it back with Epaphroditus to let people know that he's okay. To let them know that hopefully Timothy will be coming soon. To express gratitude, to express joy in this particular church. To deal with the unity issue as we'll get to. Uh, even this morning, which is why you see the language of partnership and sharing a lot in this book of the Bible. And then to touch on this, this antagonistic outsider issue. What do we do about these guys? Verse 2, Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the language of verse 2 is pretty standard for the Apostle Paul. You usually see this, this kind of language in every one of his letters for the most part. Stands out a little bit more in this letter in, in light of the cultural backdrop is this declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. Again, in, in the heart of a, a cultural epicenter in which it's both normal and expected for you to declare Caesar is Lord. Which, by the way, is an exponentially bigger deal than going today and standing in downtown Atlanta and yelling, go Patriots, at the top of your lungs. Much bigger deal. Paul doesn't care. Caesar is not his Lord. Jesus is. Verse 3 is where you start to get into the, the meat of the letter, so to speak, where Paul begins to, to lay out the, the beginnings of some themes that we're going to see kind of unfold. And so you kind of get to see what this letter is going to be about for the next few months just by looking at the remaining verses of this morning's passage. Verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He uses this kind of language that expresses a deep affection for these people. Both deep gratitude and overwhelming joy. We get some insight as to why he's filled with such joyful gratitude in verse 5. He says, I thank God for you, making my prayer with joy because, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That, that word partnership is oftentimes translated fellowship in the New Testament. In fact, that may be what your Bible says as you're looking down at it even now. But that presents a little bit of a challenge for us, I think, because that word fellowship means something today that's very different than what it meant in the Apostles Paul's day as he actually penned this letter. You, you probably don't throw around the word fellowship with your non-Christian friends. right? If you go and grab coffee uh, with a non-Christian, it's friendship. If you go grab a cup of coffee with your Christian friend, it's fellowship, right? But that's not at all what it meant in the Apostle Paul's day. In Paul's day, it was more about linking arms for the sake of a common cause, which of course establishes friendship, but it begins with this, this moving forward, bleeding for, fighting for the same thing. As D.A. Carson says in his commentary, 
The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. And for the Christian, that shared vision is the advance of the gospel. Paul, Paul is overwhelmed with joy and gratitude as he articulates his prayer for these men and women because they've given their lives to the same cause that he's giving his life to. They prioritize the gospel in such a way that it's clear that the gospel is of utmost importance to them. And this brings Paul great joy. This is very different. What you read here in the book of Philippi, very different from the numerous stories of churches planted that veer off the gospel path somewhere along the way. Here you have a church planter corresponding to a decade-old church that still deeply loves the gospel. A church that declares, if we're going to pour out our sweat, blood, and tears, it's going to be for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you think of the gospel that way? Do you think of the gospel as something worth sweating for? Worth bleeding for? Worth pouring out tears for? In terms of partnership, in terms of sharing, the saints in Philippi agreed with Paul in this. They shared the gospel. They shared in the gospel's work. They even shared in Paul's imprisonment and defense and confirmation of the gospel, we're told. What are the implications for us as we look at this idea of sharing in, partnering in? Well, notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm overwhelmed with joy when I think about all the sporting events we watch together. Notice that Paul doesn't say, I'm overwhelmed with joy when I think about all the times around the dinner table. Or I'm overwhelmed with joy when I think about the, the immense number of shared hobbies that we have. Are, are those shared experiences and loves important, significant, valuable, undeniably? It's not to diminish that, but the center of Paul's relationship with these people is a shared passion for the gospel. Everything else, the shared meals the shared experiences, the shared loves, and so forth, fall under the banner for Paul of a shared passion for Jesus. That's what I hope for this church. That we would be, you might say, a diverse people who experience a shared joy because Jesus is our shared passion. Let me say that again. I did not say a homogenous people. I did not say a people who are all in the same tax bracket. I did not say a people who all share the same skin color. I said a diverse people who are so diverse that we have to lean on Jesus to find our commonality. Both on the battlefield and on the mission field. On the battlefield as we fight alongside one another to believe the gospel, going back to everything that we talked about in January as a church. And on the mission field as we co-labor to make much of Jesus in the midst of those who desperately need to meet him and know him and love him. Let me say this, in terms of kind of creating a framework of thinking about the church. To be very clear, you and I, according to the Bible, we're co-workers. We're colleagues, co-laborers, as Paul says. It's not that you're all customers and I'm some dispenser of goods. According to the Bible, we're called to link arms with a shared passion for a shared common cause, namely to make much of Jesus Christ, his person and finished work. Paul says to his friends in Philippi, that was our friendship, that was our relationship when we began, and it's true of our relationship now a decade later by God's grace. Again, big deal, because churches can so 
easily veer off the gospel path. No wonder Paul's so elated. Not only is it my hope, I'll say this again, that we, Crosspoint Peachtree City, are a diverse people who uh, experience a shared joy because Jesus is our shared passion now. But that's still true of us four years from now as we celebrate our, our eighth anniversary as a church. Paul's confident that this will be the case for his friends in Philippi. But notice verse 6, his confidence is not so much rooted in their goodness as it is in God's sovereign grace. He says this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me say this, if you're a Christian, it's God who began that work in you. You get that, right? Paul wasn't in the market for Jesus when he was knocked off of his high horse by the blinding, radiant light of Christ on the road to Damascus. Lydia, one of the first to join the core group in this church plant in Philippi, Though she was religious, we're told, Acts 16, she believed the gospel only because, quote, the Lord opened her heart. Paul says in Romans 3 that of our own accord, none of us seeks after God. If you're a Christian, it's because, again, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, has shown into our hearts To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That when you became a Christian, if you are one, you went from blind, disheveled, impoverished, outcast, groping in the darkness for something to hope in. To a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ. How anyone is saved. God says, let there be light and the scales fall from your eyes and you see Jesus for who he truly is. And if you come into this place this morning, you're not a Christian 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 is my prayer for you. That, that the radiant light of Christ would shine into your heart and cause a gospel awakening to happen for you. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, said, let there be light. And Paul was converted and Lydia was converted. And you and I have been converted. And what Paul's saying in verse 6 is this, that same God who knocked Paul off of his high horse, that same God who opened Lydia's heart, that same God who gave you eyes to see and savor the glory of Jesus Christ, that same God who's mighty to convert is also mighty to sustain. Some of us need to hear that this morning. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way. He says, As I reflect on my 50 plus years in Christ, it is indeed God who has kept me. It is not my grip on God that has made the difference, but his grip on me. I am not confident in my goodness. I am not confident in my character. I am not confident in my history. I am not confident in my reverend persona. I am not confident in my perseverance, but I am confident in God. Paul's language here is not that of possibility, but of certainty. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Verse 6 is meant to build confidence and crush pride both at the same time. I love it. It builds confidence in that we will cross the finish line in the end. Keep fighting the good fight of faith, Christian. You will cross that finish line. But it also crushes pride because the crossing of that finish line will ultimately be to God's credit. When we cross it, we won't go, look at me, I crossed it. We'll look at God and say, thank you for your sustaining grace all along the way. 
That's how the gospel works. It never leads to pride or despair. The gospel always leads to confident humility. Confident uh, swagger with humility threaded into it, you might say. Verse 7. It is right for me, Paul says, to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We'll talk a little bit more in the weeks to come about the cultural oddity that is the Apostle Paul. A man who would find himself shackled to a prison cell filled with joy and gratitude. But, but for now, a couple things to note in verses 7 and 8. First of all, notice the intensity of the affection that Paul has for these people. I hold you in my heart, he says. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, let me be clear about something. The Apostle Paul is one of the greatest, most competent theologians in all of church history. If ever there was a reminder that theology is not meant to lead to isolated, ivory tower intellectualism, but rather deep, heartwarming affection for God and others. More to come on that in just a moment. Also notice in verses 7 and 8 that this affection, again, is rooted in a shared participation in the gospel. Paul considers these people not fellow church attenders, but fellow partakers of God's grace. We're talking about lives that are intertwined with one another for the sake of the gospel, under the the waving banner of grace, in his lowest of lows, shackled to a prison cell for the sake of Christ, as he makes a reasoned case for faith in the midst of a culture that finds his worldview laughable, the church in Philippi declares, consider us shackled with you, brother. We're not going anywhere. Jesus is our shared passion. When when the word church bounces around in your head, let let me ask you, is that what you think of? What a drastically different picture than that of a bunch of people coming together to consume week in and week out. Again, we're talking about hearts knit together based on a deep shared love for Jesus and his gospel. Is that what you want? I think that's a critical question to wrestle with. Because I'll I'll be honest with you, that's what you're going to get around here. That's what we're after. If that is what you want, I think you're in the right place. If you're already experiencing that, tell other people about it. As God intertwines your life, your heart with other people for the sake of a a common cause, a shared passion for Jesus. If If you're not experiencing that, start moving toward others in this church and see what God might do in your life. Paul's deep affection for these brothers and sisters leads him to petition the Lord on their behalf. Verse 9, he says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I love this prayer. For a couple of reasons. Number one, first of all, Paul's view of love is not one that involves a diploma. Paul doesn't believe that you, you ever graduate from the school of love. In fact, when you start to get to the point that you think you might uh, be in line for a diploma, you're then meant to just overflow whatever you're filled with and just continue to be filled over and over and over again. There's always room to grow in love. Second of all, Coming back to the idea we talked about just a moment ago, notice how Paul connects love and knowledge. We live in a culture that sees right thinking and and right feeling as incompatible with one another. And so the idea is if you want to be a person with deep-seated affections, steer clear of doctrine. It's an affection killer. Or if you want to be a person deeply rooted in truth, steer clear of feelings. They're not to be trusted. 
Paul says something drastically different. Namely, that truth and affection are actually friends. Really good ones. He's not interested in in affectionless, cold, dead orthodoxy, nor is he interested in hollow, empty emotionalism. He doesn't want either of those for the church. Lynn Coick, in his commentary, says this. He says, knowledge without love is like facts without a narrative, like images with no context, like existing with no gravity. The absence of love makes any knower, even the most brilliant by human standards, Nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 lays that out very well. For Paul, the Christian life is one in which as our minds are awakened to the excellencies of Christ, so will our affections be stirred for him and for others. In other words, the head and the heart of Christianity are inextricably linked. You can't divorce the two from one another. As we grow in knowledge of God, our, our affections for him will find their roots in the truth of who he actually is, increasing our joy and bringing him great glory. Isn't that what you want? I mean, I've used this example before, and it's a borrowed analogy from someone smarter than me along the way. I don't even remember where I got it from. But, but this idea that if I were to tell you with great affection about my blonde-haired, blue-eyed beauty of a wife, there, there's nothing impressive about those affections because they're rooted in a lie. She's not a blonde. She doesn't have blue eyes. doesn't matter how doting I am about her. It's not rooted in the reality of who she is. There's something that's more honoring to God and more joy-inducing for us when our affections for him are actually rooted in who he truly is. That's part of the reason why it's so critical to grow in the knowledge of God. Not only so that we can wield that truth as a sword on the battlefield, going back to what we talked about in January, but so that our worship of him is actually rooted in reality. It's, it's honoring to the Lord. It's, it brings him great glory when we talk about him for who he actually is, not this distorted funhouse mirror version of who he is. Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11 to state the desired outcome of this growing in love that's rooted in truth. He says this, beginning in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. According to the Apostle Paul, love that's rooted in truth leads to purity. It leads to righteousness. It leads to Christ-likeness. We're not talking about truth for truth's sake, nor are we talking about love for love's sake. We're talking about truth and love which are rooted in Jesus Christ, bringing about the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Notice the ultimate reason that Paul prays these things in verse 11. He's most certainly after the Philippians' joy, but he's also after God's glory. He says, I want you to approve what is excellent. I want you to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Everything that Paul drives at in these 11 verses is with the glory and praise of God in view. I've said this before and I'll say it again. None of us goes to the beach and looks out on that vast stretch of ocean and says, aren't I remarkable? That's, if you do that, you're weird. Nobody does that. We don't do that. Why? Because you were created to, to bask in something bigger than you. We, we love to be surrounded by majesty, not because it makes us feel big, but rather because it actually makes us feel quite small. We're okay with that. Where did that come from? 
Answer, we were created to be overwhelmed by the glory and splendor and majesty and goodness and grace of our creator and redeemer. Think about everything that we've talked about this morning. I mean, doesn't, doesn't it all just scream of the glory and splendor and grace of God? A God capable of rescuing a man like the Apostle Paul from his own religious heart? Transforming him from a church persecutor to a church planter. A God whose grace is big enough to redeem the Lydia's of this world, along with the tormented slave girls and apathetic blue-collar jailers. A God who's so powerful that all he has to, to do to our darkened souls is say, let there be light, and with a divine word, souls are awakened from the dead. I don't do that. God does that. A God fully capable of finishing the good work he began in us. A God able to bring a diverse group of misfits like you and me together to fight for a cause that's much bigger than us. A God able to fill us and sustain us with a joy that the world has never known. A God big enough to overwhelm our minds with truth and overwhelm our hearts with love. That's your God, Christian. We're talking about a big, glorious, splendid God who's worthy of our praise. And here's the best part. That big, glorious, splendid God loves you with a love that makes the Apostle Paul's love for the church in Philippi look sad and pathetic. Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ for evidence of his deep love for you. Man, he loves you so much. He entered into your darkness to call you into his marvelous light. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death you deserve to die, nailed to a Roman splintered wooden cross. You are deeply loved, church. You believe that this morning. Like Paul, we have a lot to rejoice about, even in the midst of suffering. Over the course of the next few months, as we explore this book of the Bible, and this will be the benediction as we leave this place this morning, my prayer is that God would overwhelm you with a joy like you've never known before. A joy both fueled and fanned into flame by the power of the gospel.